sgp.net. Our thanks for a grant to Val's Heavenly Wings and Seafood. Val's offers 10 different flavors of wings, including lemon pepper, garlic, teriyaki, and a range of heat in their buffalo-style wings. All of them absolutely heavenly. Val's also serves outrageous chicken tenders, fresh-fried seafood, Nathan's hot dogs, finger-licking cheese fries, along with daily lunch specials. Val's is located in the Beaufort Plaza at 7 Robert Smalls Parkway next to Substation 2 and can be reached at 379-8257. Val's Heavenly Wings and Seafood, where the flavors are so divine. I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. I'm Christine Foskey, and that quote is from Chuck Swindoll. My husband Mike and I own Foskey Heating and Air, and we promise you honest answers and affordable options. There are a lot of heating and air companies that want to sell you things you just don't need and fail to provide options. At Foskey Heating and Air, we provide the personal service you deserve 24-7 at 681-HEAT. That's 681-4328. Thank you, and God bless. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a call-in talk show where we discuss the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. And if you have a specific question as you've been studying God's Word or a challenge you're facing in life that you'd like biblical counsel on, some issue that you'd like to discuss, the lines are open right now. Again, locally, the phone number is 525-1859-525-1859. We have a toll-free number for those who are not listening in this area. And if you'd like to call us toll-free, the number is 877. And it's the call letters of our station, WAGP, followed by 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net, tbl at wagp.net. When you call, you can go on the air live. You can take your question. If you want to remain totally anonymous, that's fine with us. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. Indeed it is, Pastor, and uh, we've got a number of questions that have already come in via email. Two lines are already taken, so um, while we're waiting to see whether they're going to go live or dictate their question, let's go to one of those emailed questions. Uh, This person says, I'm looking into a new Bible and looking over different translations, i.e. the NASB and ESV, but what I'm seeing uh, that bothers me, maybe it shouldn't, but it does, is that comparing these two Bibles, the NAS and the ESV, uh, the NAS, when referencing God or Jesus with, with either him or he, has the H capitalized, but the others, the ESV and NIV, 
uh, which I've compared, have the H small. Why is that, or am I making a big thing out of nothing? Uh, the one verse I see is Romans 3.25, also in Exodus 24.10. I believe the his feet are referring to God's feet. I believe that when referencing God or Jesus, the H should be capitalized. Well, that is true in the ESV and the NIV. The uh, pronouns for God are not capitalized. That's not necessarily bad or evil or wrong. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's really just a decision in terms of the, the, the publisher and the translators in terms of how they want to do that. Uh, understand that in the original manuscripts, we have two kinds of Greek manuscripts, for instance. They're either in all lowercase letters, all lowercase Greek letters, or some manuscripts are in all uppercase Greek letters. So, you know, which is correct? I mean, if you want to just go from the Greek manuscripts, I suppose you could just put it all in lowercase letters and and not even uh, have uh, a capital at the beginning of a sentence. So there are translation things that um, teams decide and publishers decide. There's a lot of uh, freedom in terms of you may come to an Old Testament quotation and for instance, in the New American Standard, they put it all in capital letters if there's an Old Testament quotation. In the New International Version, they um, italicize Old Testament quotes. So there's a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility. Um, why is it that some translations like the King James and New American Standard and several others capitalize the pronouns for God? It, it was done just as an act of, of respect. Um, Somebody might say, well, that's cultural. That's like, well, when we use pronouns for God in prayer, uh, we use thy and thou instead of you and your. Well, you know, that really is a reflection of Old English versus necessarily a term of respect. But for so long, because the King James and the Geneva Bible prior to that were the standard translations in America— in Old English reflected those types of pronouns when people prayed, they, they spoke in that. What became interesting is that even as the language changed, when people prayed, they prayed in King James English. When I was a new Christian, uh, most all the churches that I went to in the 1970s, when someone stood up and prayed, they were still praying in King James English. It was right in transition during that time. Um, and occasionally you'll still meet an older Christian who, who does that. And I, I'm not criticizing that. I don't think it's any more spiritual, any more reverent. Um, and some would, you know, do that with uh, argue the same for pronouns. I, I do think it's helpful to capitalize the pronouns uh, where you can capitalize them. Uh, there are some places where um, passage comes to mind in Second Thessalonians chapter two, whether a pronoun should be capitalized or lowercase. Is it a reference to God the Holy Spirit as the restrainer uh, during the time of the tribulation, or is it a reference to something else like government or whatever? Well, that's an interpretive issue. And so even their translations like the New American Standard, not wanting to make that interpretive issue, but want to, wanting to leave it to the reader, they leave it lowercase. Well, some might say, well, then you made an interpretive issue. Well, not necessarily, but uh, listen, when I write a paper, I still write with pronouns capitalized when it comes to God. Number one, people have no question whether who the antecedent is. Is the antecedent 
a person or is the antecedent the person of God? Uh, so one, I think it helps clarify, but I, I don't think you can say that one is more correct or one is more necessarily even reverent. Uh, that is all an issue of the heart and where people are, are coming from. But it's inconceivable for me, say, not to capitalize the word God unless it's in reference to a false god or the god of this world, Satan. Um, it's inconceivable for me not to capitalize Christ. Uh, so people draw a line somewhere, even uh, a number in variety of translations that, that are out there. So great question. Let's go to our next one, Rick. All right, indeed. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980. Uh, and uh, if you would like, uh, you can also email us at tbl at net. I'm actually trying to get into our uh, various uh, Internet options right now, but everything seems to be down. And so um, I'm actually having to go through my uh, Verizon account in order to get those uh, email questions. Um, But uh, uh, we've got some exciting things uh, to talk about. Yeah, let let uh, let me raise a couple things that are coming up that I think will be interesting to our listening audience. We had a whole ton of email that have come through questions, but... We can't access them, having a computer problem. So while Rick's working on that, let me highlight a couple things. Number one, uh, Dr. Tony Evans, whom you listen to here on this station, uh, he is one of the uh, featured speakers on the Moody Broadcast Network. He will be with us on April the 27th and 28th. Dr. Tony Evans, Community Bible Church in the Parish Church of St. Helena, uh, together are bringing him in. He is a gifted speaker, a great expositor of God's Word, and we're very, very excited to be able to co-sponsor this event with St. Helena Parish. Uh, They're celebrating their 300th anniversary. We're celebrating our 30th, but together we're going to uh, highlight uh, this event in the community, and so if you're a church and you'd like to come, there's going to be a pastor's luncheon, too, just for pastors only. It's by application only, and you'll be able to go to our website at cbcofbuford.org, a pastor's lunch. It's by application. Uh, We won't be able to accommodate every pastor who wants to come in South Carolina and Georgia who's listening to us today. Uh, And we want to represent a a wide variety of churches and denominations and sizes as well. So there'll be an opportunity for pastors who are interested, senior pastors, uh, men only, uh, to uh, no pastorettes, (laughs) to fill out that application. And we would love to uh, have you for that special luncheon and that special word of encouragement that Dr. Evans will be bringing. Later in this year, also, Alistair Begg will be coming to Community Bible Church in October of 2012 for a missions conference, and so we're very, very excited about that. All right, I think we're back up and running. Let's take the question that just came through dictated and see if we can respond to that. If you're listening today and you have a question, again, the number locally is 525-1859, or toll-free at 877-WAGP9. Indeed, our first uh, live caller would like to know if, as Christians, we should financially help someone who is struggling to make ends meet and who does not tithe, even though they have a job. Well, it's a good question, and you have to be discerning whenever you help people financially. Uh, You know, we have a, 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 a platform 
in our church uh, to care for people who are in need. It begins with those who are members. Uh, The Bible says in the book of Galatians, do good to all men, but especially to those who the household of faith. And so I think when a local church tries to discern what a person's need may be, uh, it starts with those who are members of their fellowship. The sad thing is sometimes you'll get people who will join a church just because they know that that church will help them financially. So even there, we have to have some stipulations. Uh, usually before we help people, they have to have been members at least a year before we can consider helping them. Uh, it's strange, but there are people who literally work the churches. Uh, they'll show up at one church's door. They'll drive down the street, the same need, recite it all over again, see if that church will help. And that's what they do for a living. They work churches and they try to, uh, you know, get as much money and receive as much money as they can. So you have to be wise. You have to be a good steward as to what God has entrusted you to personally. I think sometimes, too, uh, it's helpful if you're a member of a church and someone comes to you for a need to possibly consider meeting that need through your local assembly rather than directly. And here's why, is that sometimes pastors in a church or deacons are aware that there are problems that are going on that you don't may, may not be privy to. You may be helping a person who is actually struggling financially because they are under God's discipline. God, you know, has a way of caring for his own, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's financial. God does whatever it takes to get our attention. And you don't want to interfere with that. Sometimes, too, you're putting money into someone's hands that doesn't solve the problem. I had a guy call me and he said, oh, yeah, um, uh, um, I need a, a hotel room to stay in and it's going to be cold tonight and wondered, Pastor, if you're going to put me up, if you'd put me up. I said, well, what are you going to do the next night? He said, well, uh, I don't know. And of course, I knew this fellow and he had an alcohol drug problem and we had actually gotten him a ministry to be helped and he left that ministry because he wasn't willing to follow the rules. And I said, listen, for me to help you tonight, tomorrow night, you're going to be in the same problem. I said, a lot of the problems you have, you've brought on yourself. I said, if I were homeless because of the situation that I was in, uh, I'd want to be homeless in a warm place. I said, what I would do is I'd go out to I-95, put a sign that says Miami, and I'd hitchhike to Miami. I said, I can't help you. I said, I tried to help you before, helped you financially, but you didn't really receive the help. So for me to help you is just to waste God's money and to pour it down a hole. Uh, two, there are people who come for financial need who are in the jam they're in, not because of necessarily willful disobedience, but just ignorance. They don't know how to manage God's money because they don't know what the Scripture says. So even at Community Bible Church, when we help people through our benevolent ministry, we ask questions like maybe you've asked about tithing, about saving, about giving, about stewardship. And uh, we actually ask them to go through a financial course that I taught at six and a half hours of teaching called financial freedom God's way and it looks what the Bible says about stewardship about saving giving debt the whole nine yards because again you just end up pouring money down a hole 
if a person isn't responding to God's principles and trying to uh, exercise good principles of biblical stewardship. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next caller uh, says that she and her husband bought a plot at the cemetery that's only big enough for two urns. He died and was cremated, and now she's wondering if she should go ahead and be cremated so she can be buried with her husband. She can't afford another plot and wonders if this is against God's will. Well, let me just say that when you deal with funeral costs, the costs are very subjective. Uh, you know, people say, well, the average cost of a funeral is, you know, $7,000. Well, not necessarily. Uh, you know, you can, depending on the state, uh, exercise some options. I don't think it's changed in South Carolina, but you can, if you want, you can be buried in a sheet. They can wrap you up in a sheet and drop you in a hole. Uh, that would save the cost of a box. You know, you could uh, literally make a box out of pine for less than $100. And if you need some help with that, you buy the wood. I'll get some guys to build it for you, and we'll leave it in your garage. And when you die, let your loved ones know the box is already made. Uh, So there's a lot of things you can do is what I'm trying to say that would significantly reduce the cost of a funeral service. Um, and I would encourage you to explore those. Again, what you're really asking me is, am I in favor of cremation? And the answer is no. I don't think that is God's primary uh, vehicle in which to deal with dead people. God's pattern in Scripture is to bury. There are some things we do in the church, not because we're necessarily commanded to do them, but because God, by illustration and pattern, has given us an example to follow. So, for instance, uh, nowhere does it in the Bible command that a local church should have deacons. It does command that you are to appoint elders, but it doesn't command that you are to appoint deacons. Now, it's assumed that you will have deacons because there are qualifications that are given for deacons in 1 Timothy 3. But it doesn't command us to... I have deacons, unlike with elders, we are commanded to point elders in the assembly. So by example, we follow what the early church did. And there are many things in the church that I could cite that fall into that same category. Well, in the Old Testament, God's method for dealing with the dead was always burial. All the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all Jacob's sons who are also called patriarchs, they're always buried. Uh, Moses himself, when God does a funeral, it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 31. It says, he, God, Yahweh, buried Moses. God buried Moses. Um, in fact, uh, the New Testament reveals something that we don't learn in Deuteronomy. There was actually a dispute over his body between Michael the archangel and the devil. Uh, but God buried Moses. We also know in the New Testament, every child of God was always buried, whether it's John the Baptist or Ananias in Sapphira or the church at Thessalonica or the Corinthians, they're always buried. The idea of burning the body was really uh, has pagan origins. It was unthinkable for a Jew, still is for an Orthodox Jew, and it was really unthinkable for Christians until maybe the last 40 or 50 years. The idea of cremation was introduced in this country by the Unitarians who denied the doctrine of the Trinity, denied the deity of Christ, denied the authority of the Bible, and denied 
the fact that the body would someday be raised. And so in defiance to the resurrection, Unitarians in this country were the first to practice cremation. It was like uh, an apostate shaking their fists in the face of a believer saying, you're all a bunch of fools for believing that God's going to raise the body. Let him raise this mess. We're going to burn it. Well, obviously, if a body's been cremated or eaten by fish at sea or wherever the body is, it's not a problem for God. God is going to raise it up. But the biblical pattern is to bury. And practically, it's always better to bury in terms of your funeral. When I, and I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals. I think it's around 500. Um, and when I do a funeral, there's so much more punch to your funeral if there's a body, then if there's just an urn. And people come in and tell me, well, Pastor, will you still do my funeral? I'm going to be cremated. I said, of course, I'll do it. But if you want my um, you know, counsel, my suggestion to you is that you don't cremate, that you bury. I believe that's God's pattern. Uh, it's really an act of faith. That's how it's pictured in 1 Corinthians 15, just like a dead seed that's put in the ground and it produces life. The Christian, when they bury, is ma- are making the Christians are making a statement that we believe that God will raise the body. And again, it's your last will and testament, and it's one of those times when your family members and friends will come to church. Family members and friends who may not typically come to church, you don't want to miss that opportunity. You want to use that opportunity to win some of them to Christ. Again, your your funeral just loses so much punch. When there's just an urn or just a picture with no urn, um, then when there's a body, the reality of death is brought home to people's hearts. Uh, people don't usually cry at funerals when there's an urn. <laughs> they cry at funerals when there's a body. God softens and breaks the heart with the body that is present. So I think it's unwise for you as a Christian to cremate your loved one. And uh, forget the costs. Good night. You know, go sell some some of the junk you got in the attic and you probably come up with the money you need for the funeral. And it doesn't have to be expensive. In fact, I think it would be a real statement if you are low on funds and you just had an ordinary box. You know, I've seen people spend five, six, seven grand for a casket. I also know that you can get them, you know, for 500 bucks. Now you can buy them online. Uh, and have them in your garage if you want, or have them overnight shipped the next day. So, you know, there's a lot of options that are open to you. Uh, Listen, uh, funeral homes are like used car dealers. Uh, They are. I mean, they're good people, but, you know, there's all kinds of packages and options that you can get. And if you want to buy them, they'll be happy to sell them to you. So think your way through it carefully. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And our Internet connection seems to be back up, uh, so we've got a couple of emails that came in. Stuart, a listener in Montana, has been seeing a trend of good acts of kindness, things such as giving to the needy, clothing the poor, feeding the hungry, and raising money for the needs of people all around. But he says, I'm seeing... A lack of people sharing the gospel. Where is that balance? In Matthew 25, we see Jesus speaking of giving, but it doesn't speak of sharing the gospel. And this listener is concerned that maybe he's um, got a misunderstanding of giving, or maybe people do. He says, I believe that what we need to do is to help the poor, but only giving the physical needs without giving the spiritual needs seems that we are not fulfilling the ultimate goal. 
Well, uh, it's a good question, and I think it's a fair question. And I see here in your question, too, you're mentioning a church who was giving uh, with no strings attached and not, quote-unquote, sharing the gospel with their giving, and that's a mistake on their part, and it's very unwise on their part to do that. Uh, Certainly, there are times in the church when we share the gospel And the sharing of the gospel is accompanied with the meeting of a a physical need. It's hard to share Christ with a a stomach that's hungry. Uh, But if I have a choice between giving $25, say, to the Christian Children's Fund that is not Christian, if you read their online doctrinal statement, they say, well, we don't, you know, espouse any particular religious belief and uh, if you want to be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian, you can be. Well, why do they call themselves the Christian Children's Fund then? Well, because there's a bunch of suckers out there, Christians, whom they're preying off of. Uh, they know that Christian people give money. Uh, you know, to me, I, I think Christians are sometimes used during the um, the times when, for instance, public television does their annual share Do you think it's by accident that they start end up highlighting, you know, an interview with Billy Graham or some uh, Christian function, and then they come on and, and say, you know, if you enjoy the broadcasting here on public TV, why don't you give? Of course not. They know Christians are more inclined to give. God's people are the most generous people in the world, especially evangelical Christians. So, you know, if you're going to share the gospel— and you're going to meet a physical need, make sure if you're using another vehicle other than yourself that it's reliable. So I'd rather give $25 to Compassion International because I know when they feed a hungry stomach, they're going to talk to the person about Jesus Christ as well, and that's critically important. Uh, I don't think it's uh, necessarily wrong to meet physical needs, but it's wrong when we do it to the exclusion of the gospel. There's a church in Worcester, Mass., that... Uh, Pleasant Street Baptist Church, and I just happened to see their newsletter recently, and they collected uh, coats, winter coats for homeless people, and they ended up collecting like 300 jackets, and all of them were taken on a single day, and homeless people in that community came, and uh, poor people, and they had the opportunity to get a winter coat, but they also had the opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, One year, we, uh, through our vacation Bible school, asked the kids, they always have typically a missions project, and that year we were going to collect used eyeglasses. You know, if I knocked on your door, you might have uh, had three prescription changes in the last decade, and you've got some other eyeglasses you don't even use anymore. They're just sitting in a drawer. Well, we told the kids, go out and knock on doors and find them, and they brought back over 2,000 pairs of eyeglasses. We brought them to the Ukraine. We went into villages and little places where people had never owned a pair of eyeglasses in their lives. I remember walking through a village, and I just I just said, give me a bag. And I got about 15 pairs, and... We were walking through this village one fall day and uh, meeting people, talking to people, and this elderly couple, they had been in their 70s, and they had never owned a pair, and he just kept on trying glasses, and she kept trying glasses, and finally it's like, oh, a big smile across their face. And they had seen things they had never seen in who knows how long because they didn't have the money to own a pair of eyeglasses. 
So, of course, we ended up, I think of that couple, his name was Yvonne or John, and her name was Maria or Mary. And as it turns out, uh, we shared the gospel with them. Maria received Christ. She died two months later. Uh, We went back the next year. I wanted to see how Yvonne was doing. He was really impoverished, and I brought him back a pair of uh, coveralls, and he ended up receiving Christ and being baptized there in the local evangelical church, and it was very, very exciting, but it all started with meeting a physical need. Uh, I think in terms of Matthew 25, uh, that's a misunderstood text that you're referencing here. Um, The Lord speaks of this judgment when he will uh, uh, separate the sheep from the goats. This is uh, not the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment of the nations. It happens at the end of the tribulation. It's already been uh, referenced uh, earlier in this ch- uh, in the fo- former chapter, but it's the same message. Uh, we, he says, for the days of uh, that are coming, these days of tribulation will be just like they were before the flood. When he says in Matthew uh, twenty four thirty eight, they're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. There shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. He's describing in this judgment, not the rapture. The rapture is not here, uh, the catching up of the church. He's describing the judgment that happens at the end of the tribulation when people are carried away in eternal judgment and other people are left here on the earth to rule and reign for a thousand years with the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets a little more specific about that judgment in the 25th chapter when he tells a number of different parables. And he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, thirsty, so forth? When did we see you as a strange, invite you in as, and so forth? And then he'll say, the king answered and said, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. But he'll say to others, will depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and same discourse. And then they will say, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we didn't care for you? And he'll answer them. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. So he's describing that future judgment at the end of the tribulation. There are three groups of people, sheep, goats, and my brethren. Remember, the great tribulation in the Old Testament is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah the prophet and Daniel both highlight it. And Daniel describes it just like the Lord describes it in Matthew 24, an unprecedented time in all of human history. Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no human being would survive that period of time. And so... It's an awful time, but it is a time that is used to bring, among others, Jewish people to faith in Christ. 
And when a Jew during the time of the tribulation believes, he will experience great persecution. And there will be also a great number of Gentiles who respond to the gospel. Uh, Revelation 7 describes them like the sand of the seashore. But the Jewish people especially will be marked out for persecution. And believing Gentiles, who in this parable are viewed as sheep, versus unbelieving Gentiles who are viewed as goats, the sheep will care for God's people. That, I think, is what is in view when he says, the least of these, my brethren, because there will be Gentiles who will be willing to sacrifice their life by their willingness to identify with Jewish believers who have embraced Jesus as Lord. I think that's the original context. Now, by extension and application, you could take that principle and apply it in other realms. You could say that if a person is a true believer and knows Jesus as Lord, that there'll be compassion in their heart. And that certainly is an argument that James uses. A brother or a sister comes to you who's hungry or cold and and you say, I'll pray for you. God bless you. And you slam the door in their face. What kind of faith is that, asked James? Well, it's not a true faith because a true faith shows itself in works. And I think that's the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 25, that if a person has a genuine faith, there will be an outward manifestation of an inward reality. That's what he taught in Matthew 7. By their fruit, you will know them. Not everyone who makes a confession necessarily has an inward possession. You see the inward reality through the outward change of life. But for the example you use here in your email, for this church to go and share the gospel and to stick their head between their legs and not share Jesus with them, that's an affront to what we represent. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. No, if we're going to give someone a coat, we're going to give it in Jesus's name. And if they don't want to hear about Jesus, go get your coat somewhere else. It doesn't mean that we don't care about you, but we're not going to compromise what we do. And uh, I think this is important, and I think it's an important principle, especially today when other people want to get involved in the church. For instance, I'll give you an example. This is a current example that's coming up here at Community Bible Church this coming Saturday. When we um, built these buildings that we have on our campus— we established some building use policies. And amongst those policies is that unless the event somehow promotes the fulfillment of the Great Commission, either winning people to Christ, building them in their faith, or equipping them to go and help others to do the same, then it's not a viable uh, event for our buildings. So if some secular group wants to come and hold a spaghetti dinner, wonderful. But if the gospel's not shared, we're not going to let them do it. Some school wants to hold a graduation here. Well, you know, if we can't tell people about Jesus, go, go rent an auditorium somewhere else. It's not that we're trying to be unkind, but we don't want our buildings and our facility to be used anything but for the cause of Jesus Christ. So this coming Saturday... Uh, the Mexican consulate is going to be at our building. They're expecting somewhere between 500 minimum, probably closer to 1,000 uh, Mexican people who will come through our building to get some paperwork done. They wanted to know if they could use our facility. We said, sure, if <laughs> we can talk to everyone who comes through who will listen about Jesus Christ. 
and, you know, provide Bibles and all kinds. Well, sure. What do I care? We just need a facility. Great. So God is bringing all the Mexican Spanish speaking people through our building. But if he said, no, you can't do that. We, we just want you to let us use your building. We'd say, no, you can't do it. So we should never be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And if we're just feeding the poor and, and clothing the cold, and that's all we're doing, then we're, we're doing what the liberal social gospel is known for doing, and it's not what the church is to be known for doing. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Uh, the next person that we have is uh, written, I have a minister friend that I have become concerned about his character. I stumbled across a preacher on the Internet recently and realized that practically all of my friend's sermons were taken from this man. He completely repreaches this other man's sermons, and it has concerned me. What should I do about this situation? Uh, and should I approach him or the elders? And do you think this is a real character flaw? Well, my suggestion to you would be if you have a problem with your brother, go talk to your brother. Uh, now, listen, it might be that if you go and speak with him, he'll tell you right off, yeah, that's what I do. Of course I do that. In fact, uh, Rick Warren, through his ministry, encourages pastors to preach his sermons. In fact, you can download them. Um, and he'll do special emphases where, you know, 10-week series, and they give you the outlines, and here's what you should preach. And and a lot of those pastors who do, they don't have any qualms about doing it. They say, no, we like Rick Warren. We like what he's doing, and uh, we want to preach his sermons. We want to be a part of it. And you may just find out when you call your pastor up that uh, he's not uh, trying to hide that. He's he's proud of it. So, you know, talk to your talk to your pastor. Again, I can't judge his heart for, you know, why he wants to uh, do what he's doing. Uh, to me, I can't preach another man's sermon. Now, listen, all truth is God's truth. That doesn't mean I can't learn from someone else. I might be driving down the highway and listening to WAGP, and I hear some pastor, and I thought, man, that's good. That will preach. Uh, that speaks to my heart. Uh, that's what we do as pastors. That's what people who have speaking gifts do. We learn from one another. Uh, God raises up people in the body of Christ. I can listen to a lot of people here in WAGP, um, and I can tell you the page number. I heard a sermon by John MacArthur last week, and I can tell you the page number he was reading off of from a pastor who lived in the 17th century. Um, and it was a powerful illustration. Now, John MacArthur would be the first to tell you uh, that, and I, and I would agree with him, that if you learn or get a truth from another pastor, you can't every time say, well, you know, um, this is Matthew Henry who said such and such. And, uh, you know, your, your, your sermons become disjuncted, and it's very difficult to do that. In fact, some people um, would like to know where John gets some of his material because his commentaries, instead of being a traditional commentary where you footnote all the sources and everything else, um, you, they're just his sermons put into the book. Uh, and again, he's operating under the same function. I'd say a whole bunch of stuff that John MacArthur does, 98% of it is totally original with him. But I can listen to a pastor because if I'm preaching the gospel of John and I have 20 commentaries of the great preachers who wrote 
a commentary on John, and I'm familiar with all of them because I've read every single one of them, I can often tell you where they, they got that idea. But I can't tell you necessarily where that brother got the idea from. He might have got it from someone else 200 years before. So if you have a problem, go talk to your brother. I, I think the biggest thing that you should be looking for and you should be praying for with your pastor, one is that he's teaching the word of God. He's teaching and preaching the word of God. And there are some guys, there's a, a pastor in our community, has a high school graduation, uh, a high school diploma, never went to college, never went to seminary. And uh, he's in our county and he'll call me on occasion with questions. He listens to search the scriptures. He says, you don't mind if I preach your sermons and your ideas. I said, you use it all you want. All truth is God's truth. Um, he, he, he's operating out of everything that he has. And I appreciate that. And he's working hard and he's studying and he's uh, using the resources that God has given him. So, again, go talk to your pastor. That's where I would start and I would go from there. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And uh, you can also email us at tbl at net. Ryan from Cullowee, North Carolina, would like to know if you have ever heard of the Christian guitar player known as Phil Kagey, and if so, what are your thoughts about him? Uh, this listener says that uh, Kagey is very talented, and he commends him to you. Well, yeah, I, I actually heard Phil Kagey in concert once. Um, I think I was uh, maybe 19, 20 years old, and Phil Kagey, my guess is he's probably was about 25. Now he's about 60. He's been around a long time, and uh, he, if I remember, had a start in kind of a secular rock and roll band, got saved in the early 70s, found the Lord, and totally revamped all his music. He and uh, a guy who's now home with the Lord, Keith Green, used to do a lot of things together, um, and Phil Kagey. He's a genuine item. He knows the Lord. Some of these Christian musicians who come along, they uh, sometimes sing other people's music or they're very creative in their musical skills and they can take old hymns and other things and adapt them with a modern flair. But there's not always the walk to back it up or sometimes they're not even Christians. Classic example, of course, would, would have been B.J. Thomas in the 1980s who did a number of uh, Christian albums that sold millions. Uh, he was uh, doing the music largely of a unknown artist in Atlanta by the name of Pat Terry. I don't know if Pat's still around or not. He was a great brother in the Lord. He used to teach Bible studies of three and 400 people in Atlanta in the 70s and plays guitar and very, very talented, gifted Bible teacher and musician. And interestingly, too, when you look back at the history of music, uh, in the olden days of the 17th and 16th century, most of the hymns were actually written by pastors. And they were usually put to music by another individual, sometimes the same person, but not typically. So pastors would write the hymns, and the hymns really reflected great theology. So Pat Terry kind of reminded me of that style and that he was a good solid Bible teacher, not a pastor, and his music reflected that. But then B.J. Thomas took it and um, sung them, but ended up, of course, renouncing the faith after he'd done all his Christian concerts and 
people paid all this money or then there's that fella um who ended up turning out being gay who is that we used to um oh yeah that was um uh, gosh <laughs> you put me on the spot anyway there. i'm trying to remember his name ray bolts ray, yeah, bolts. ray, ray, ray bolts you know ray bolts uh he used to come to savannah every year and do a christmas conference and christmas concert man they packed that place out and now now he's doing all his concerts at the Metropolitan Christian Churches. Uh, you know, so you, you've got folks out there who aren't always solid people. Uh, I had a fellow going out the door uh, two Sundays ago, and I encouraged him to come to my office and to see me. And he said, Pastor, the, the music here is, you know, just not rock and roll enough for me and uh, he was going to a church in the upstate, and the pastor's theology, I think, is very questionable. But he said, you know, I, I don't know why there's not more punch to the music. I said, well, I think there's a lot of punch to the music. But I said, I know music is somewhat subjective. But he said, well, if the words are good, does it really matter what the beat sounds like? I hear all these Christians say, well, the the beat has to sound a certain way. And I said, well, there again, there's some flexibility. But I said, understand this. I said, if someone receives Christ this morning in our service and they are a very gifted musician, I said, and they start producing Christian music next week and they've been in an acid rock and roll band for five years, I said, what kind of music do you think they're going to produce? I said, well, their music is going to reflect their maturity in Christ. And I said, there's a lot of people out there who are babes in Christ who are producing Christian music. And so their music reflects that. And the beat reflects it. They don't see it as a spirit of confusion, but it is. You know, we had some missionary friends in Africa, and they, uh, their children had been back here in the States, and they brought back some contemporary Christian music. And this was in a community where demonism was very, very high. You know, there are some parts of the world where some of the things you read about in the Bible were people who are demonized, or we say today demon-possessed. The Bible says demonized. Um, We think, well, that's kind of foreign and strange to that culture. Well, it's not to some cultures of the world because of choices people have made to open themselves up to the evil ones to the evil one. And, and so this particular missionary came back. His kids were playing contemporary Christian music. And, and some of the new Christians were saying, why are you inviting the demonic spirits back into our community? And in their mind, music, that music that was being played, that was supposed to be Christian, was inviting evil spirits into their community. Now, understand there's an example of that in scripture, but in reversed order. You have Saul, who is tormented by a demon spirit, and David comes in. He's invited to play his harp, and whenever David plays the harp, because Saul, the demon can't stand the music, the demon is driven away, and it leaves Saul and stops tormenting him. I think the reverse could be true. I mean, you look at some of these people. Just look at the pictures on the front of the album. I mean, they're not really wholesome-looking people. You know, when their face is painted five different colors and their hair is spiked and they've got, you know, uh, a stud in every inch of their eyebrow and in their cheeks and their tongues and their lips and their ears. And good night. You know, you talk about satanic manifestations and people who tell you that they worship the devil. 
Um, listen, some of the music that's being produced today is just downright evil, and Satan knows the power of music for good or bad. So the church has to be discerning. The church has to ask, I think, older, wiser, more mature Christians. And some will chalk that up. Oh, he's just an old fogey. He's just old-fashioned. That's just his generation. Not always. Many times it's a reflection of a person's spiritual maturity. Listen, when I was a Christian for 10 years, I think I had grown enough to have been considered mature in Christ, not arrived. None of us have arrived. But I could tell some of the contemporary Christian music that was coming out was not good. But you see, here's the problem is that very often people, before they have been converted, have drugged their minds and hearts through the trash of the world. So, you know, there's a new book out on sex in the church. And, you know, some of the people who are endorsing them, I know of one, one pastor in this state who endorses it, his testimony as a former, you know, porn man, he thinks the book is great. Well, of course he does, because he drug his mind through the pit before he was converted and hadn't, hasn't matured enough in his relationship with the Lord to see the difference. And so there's a disclaimer in the book, well, if you don't live in a big city, you might find this book to be offensive. Oh, like, um, that's a bad thing? When God tells us we're to be wise to the things that are good? and innocent to the things that are evil. That's a bad thing that you haven't saturated your mind in filth and that you might be, quote, unquote, a a prude, so to speak, that you would have difficulty with some of the material in his book. Listen, that's, that's how sour the church is today. That's how far we have drifted in this age of lukewarmness. And, and it's very, very sad. And it's reflected and a number of things, and certainly reflected in music, much of the music that's out there today. Let's go to the next question. All right. I think we've got time for at least one more. Um, Kathy from Bluffton would like to know, what is considered Christ's first coming? Is it his birth or his triumphant entry uh, Triumphant entry on the donkey into Jerusalem where they throw all the palms down? And after his second coming, uh, during the rapture, is his final return considered a third coming or part of his second coming? Thank you. Well, again, terms like first coming or second coming are more theological terms than they are biblical terms. So maybe we could say, well, the the program concerning the first coming that would include his incarnation, his earthly life, his uh, three-year public ministry, his crucifixion, his uh, resurrection, his ascension, that's all part of his first coming into the world. Just like concerning the program, concerning the second coming. Uh, There's the catching up of the church. There's the great tribulation period. There's the literal uh, physical return of Christ to the earth. His reign for a thousand years. Uh, The new heavens and the new earth. uh, When we spend, um, you know, uh, uh, an eternity there. So that's all part of the program. Uh, today, though, usually when people talk about the second coming, they're referring to that event when he comes to the earth uh, to be distinguished from the catching up of the church. Some make that one event, the catching up, uh, and then his coming to the earth like a U-turn. 
uh, in his reign. Some, some, when they think of the second coming, they say the church is going to be caught up. There's no millennial reign. We just enter into eternity. Uh, the great white throne judgment takes, takes place at that. So, you know, again, terminology by the user has to be defined. But the, the term third coming, I think, would be pretty foreign to uh, virtually all theology, and people wouldn't use that term. Good, good question, searching question, and I appreciate it. All right. Eric from Beaufort would like to know, is it wrong while praying to God to also pray directly to Jesus Christ for thanks for dying for us and to the Holy Spirit for thanks for residing in us? Or should all those prayers be directed toward God alone since he's all three anyways? For instance, Thank you, God, for giving your son to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving yourself on the cross because of your unexplicable love for us to wash away our sins. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for residing in me and helping direct me to a life full of worship to the Father Almighty. Wrong, or is that all right? Well, I don't think you can say it's it's wrong because we're not modalists. We believe there's one God. Uh, we don't believe in three gods. We believe one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Uh, James affirms even the demons believe that God is one. That's an orthodox belief is the point James is making. But, of course, they don't have a life that demonstrates that. Um, So, no, when you're you're praying to the Father, you can't divide God up. But there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons within the oneness of God. We call it the triunity of God. I think the typical pattern God has given us in Scripture is we pray to the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. So Jesus talks about uh, praying in His name. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just something that we tack on at the end of a prayer. Uh, It's something that the Scripture teaches us because we're affirming that it is only through the work of the cross that we have access to God. Um, We pray in the Spirit, a verse that uh, comes to mind is here in the book of uh, Jude. Here it is. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Jude 20. So we pray in the Spirit. So we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Is it wrong, say, to pray directly to Christ? Well, no. In fact, uh, an example that comes to mind would be Stephen in Acts 7. Lord Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. Who is he praying to? Directly to the Lord Jesus. Um, But again, the the pattern in Scripture, uh, the church is making their request known to God. They are a reference to the Father. Though the word theos, God, can be a direct reference to the Son in other passages. But they are a reference to the Father, Acts 12, uh, when the church is gathered there in a prayer meeting. To the Father, our Father who art in heaven, in Jesus' name, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. He not only helps us in our weaknesses when we don't know how to pray as we ought, but he also translates Romans 8, our prayers, when we don't know how to pray as we should. Great question. We're out of time for today. Appreciate the questions that you asked. Hope you have a great day. Lord bless you. 